Father in heaven, um, as we come now to your word, I pray you would open um, our minds to understand and you would grant grace to us that we would not only understand what is here, but we would uh, believe it and that it would be to us life. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to Nehemiah in chapter 13. Nehemiah chapter 13. I want to read us to us this chapter. Nehemiah in chapter 13, please. And this is the word of the Lord. Verse 1. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. It was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, uh, Eliashib, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithes of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses... uh, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Pedadiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds for I've done, that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing heaps in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine grapes, figs and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Uh, uh, Tyrannus also who lived in the city brought in fish and all who lived and all and I'm sorry, and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you're doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, 
I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load may be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of uh, king, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there is no king like him. And he was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus, I cleansed them from everything foreign and I established the duties of the priest, the Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Now, come to the end, really, of our consideration of Nehemiah. Not the end end, because next week I'm going to take up one more thing. The prayers of Nehemiah that we find in this chapter that I won't be able to consider today. So one more, but maybe two. But uh, we really come to, to the end of this uh, um, book in the Old Testament. And in one sense, it's very sad. As I mentioned last week, um, it would have been great to uh, end, in the, end in the middle or, or two-thirds through chapter 12, which we read, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. That would have been a great ending. But, but realistically, that isn't how all of this situation ended. And so here we find ourselves. Uh, you remember that they had been in exile, the Israelites, and then they had returned. They had built the, rebuilt the temple, ultimately rebuilt the walls around the city of Jerusalem, ultimately repopulated the city of uh, Jerusalem, and reestablished, we had thought, the temple worship and all of that. And, and even in the midst of that, while Nehemiah was still around with them, there was a great renewal, revival took place. They had heard the word of God. They had been joyful. They had repented of their sins. They had recovenanted really with God to follow him. And they had set out particular vows. You might remember from chapter 10, all of which now seem repudiated in this chapter. Uh, we found that they said that they would not give their daughters 
to marry the sons of those outside Israel. And remember, this wasn't racial, but it was religious in the sense that they knew that if their daughters or sons had married outside the faith, that it was quite likely because of their history and just the history of humanity and our human nature to follow other gods rather than uh, their own God. And so they, they knew that to remain pure before God, they needed to marry in a sense, if you will, uh, not only in their own uh, race as children of Abraham, but also in the faith. And uh, then they promised to obey the Sabbath, uh, not to buy and sell on the Sabbath. They had agreed not to, they, they had agreed to, to remember the poor, and they had agreed to take care of the temple because their whole life revolved around their worship there in the temple. But all of that now uh, seems, uh, seems gone. And here we find that Nehemiah, had been in Israel or been in this part of Israel in Jerusalem, Judah for a number of years, probably 12 years. He came in the 20th year of Artaxerxes and the 32nd year of Artaxerxes. He left and went back. Remember, he had been cupbearer to the king of Persia. And when the word came to him that the walls needed to be rebuilt, uh, he prayed and then asked the king to let him go back and rebuild the walls. And you might remember in this chapter 2 of Nehemiah, that when Nehemiah asked permission to go back and rebuild the walls, the king said, well, how long will you be gone? Well, no answer was given. We don't know what was negotiated at that point. Uh, He may have said, after everything gets rebuilt and up and running, then I'll come back. Who knows? But he stayed 12 years and went back. And then, after a given amount of time, we don't know how long, he stayed back uh, with Artaxerxes. Uh, Could have been another 20 years or so, because that's how long... The king continued to rule there in Persia. Uh, He returns, and when he returns again, he finds all that he doesn't want to find. He finds that it seems that everything that had been established when he was governor there uh, was no longer in place. All of the vows they had made, if you will, had been broken. And so what we want to ask this morning is, what did Nehemiah find? What did he do about it? What's it say to us? What did he find? What did he do about it? What's that say really to us? So we can see in these uh, verses 4 through 9, what he finds is that Eliashib, the priest, is even named later in chapter 20, in verse 28, is the high priest. Uh, He was put in charge of of the chambers. Remember, the temple didn't always have, not only had those, those very special places, but also had some very functional places. Rooms, chambers, uh, so that things could be stored and, and priests and Levites could hang out when they weren't being priestly and Levitely. Uh, and so they would have these, um, storehouses for the, for the offerings and tithes to come. Remember, it wasn't in money, but it was in grain and oil and animals. And so it was messy. And so they needed places to store all of this. Plus, that became the, the payment for the Levites and the priests to be able to do their work, not have to to live in the, and work in the field so they could hang out in the temple and, 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 and take care of the temple and also make the sacrifices. And so they had to be paid. So all of that was for them and had to be distributed rightly. So there were storerooms that were set up for that. Now, Eliashib uh, seemed to have an alliance with Tobiah. And you might remember that Tobiah was an enemy of everything that Nehemiah was trying to do. He's, 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 he's introduced very early in the situation and he's said to be with others uh, an enemy. He, 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 he makes threats 
against Nehemiah saying, do you know what you're doing? Do you realize that, that the king is going to be against you? Nehemiah knew that wasn't true, but, but it was that threat. And then later he would ridicule Nehemiah and the work that was going on. He would say to the people, what do you think you're doing? Uh, you're building this flimsy little wall. Even if a fox climbed up on it, it would fall over. Of course, that wasn't true either because the wall was big enough to handle these big choirs that would go around at the very end at the dedication of the wall. But still, he, he ridiculed them and, and, and mocked them. And, and, and with others, then he got together to threaten violence to them. We're going to come against you. And, 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 but, but Nehemiah was even more insidious than that because he and others invited ultimately Nehemiah to a bit of a summit, perhaps to kill him or perhaps to persuade him to go along with them. But he was very subtle and how he worked his way into Israel. In chapter 6 and verse 17, we read this. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son uh, Johanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of uh, Berechiah, as his wife. And so you could see that he was very much entrenched, very much entwined. He was married uh, to an Israelite. Um, uh, I'm sorry, his son, in, his, his daughter was married to an Israelite. And um, I, mean, no, I got that wrong. He was married to an Israelite. He was the son of, uh, son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era. That was a prominent Israelite Jewish family named later in all the listings. And so there he was. And he was an Ammonite. And if you remember from the opening verses of chapter 13, uh, there was this, this notice that no Ammonite should ever enter the assembly of God. And the reason was, if you remember back when the Israelites were leaving Egypt and going to the land of promise, they were going through the land of Ammon, but the Ammonites hired this prophet, Balaam, to curse the Israelites. And, of course, God turned it into a blessing for them. So he didn't do it. And not only that, as the Israelites were trying to go through Ammon, they said, let us go through. We won't take any of your water or we won't go into your fields. And if we do, we'll pay you. Please, we won't be a burden to you. And still they said no. So there was a bit of a war at that point in time. And God made this declaration. So Tobiah was even an Ammonite. And he was there living in the temple area. Because what Elisha the priest did was give him a suite of chambers taking out the tithes and the offerings and, and the utensils that were being used. In the, he moved all of that out so Tobiah could have a little suite, offices, maybe an apartment in the, in the temple itself so he could hang out in the city because he was so intertwined, entrenched with the people there because of his relation by marriage. And many were bound by oath to him, probably business or political dealings. And then in chapter 6 and verse 19, and even then also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence, Nehemiah's presence, and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. And so basically these friends of Tobiah were speaking well of him to Nehemiah. And then they were taking all of Nehemiah's plans and they were telling him. And Tobiah was writing letters to Nehemiah to threaten him. He was a despicable character. 
But there he was. And Nehemiah found him there in the temple. And of course, what made it worse is that what was happening, where were all the tithes and offerings going? Where were the utensils being stored? It was if that meant nothing, all that was important was this alliance with Tobiah. We can see that. Israel always had problems with alliances. Rather than trusting God, they often made alliances with other political leaders. You get the sense that they thought, well, Tobiah's an important person. He's an influential person. Uh, we should make an alliance with him. He'll really help us. And, and look at what happened in the midst of that. They were neglecting the temple of God, the worship of God, to maintain this alliance. They forgot that it was God who would keep them and God who would protect them. And, and they needed no alliances with anyone else or anybody else. And yet they had it here with this Ammonite enemy Tobiah. So we see what happens. Uh, Nehemiah was angry. And he threw all of that out. And he put Tobiah out. And then he gave orders to cleanse the chambers. And he then brought back all the utensils uh, and the offerings uh, in the house of God. You also get a sense that there's a little bit of rebellion against Nehemiah by Eliashim. I mean, he knew that what he was doing, he waited for Nehemiah, if you will, to leave town and then boom, he brought in Tobiah at this, at this point. And then chapter, then verse 10 through verse 14, we, we see the implications of all of that. Uh, Nehemiah finds that, that, that the Levites and the priests haven't been paid. Uh, and so what they've had to do is go back to work. And if they went back to work, then there's nobody to take care of the temple and there's nobody to offer sacrifices. And therefore the worship of the people of God is neglected, and that's to be the very center, you see, of their lives, the worship of God. That's why it was so important to get back to Jerusalem. That was so important to rebuild the temple. That's why it was so important to repopulate Jerusalem, the city, so that the priests and Levites could live there and occupy, if you will, the temple and make these sacrifices because the people's, the lives of the people were to revolve always around God. It's amazing how many women have come up to me in the last week or so as the women of the church are reading through the Bible this year and and are reading through Leviticus. And they say to me, wow, these people had to think about God all the time. They had to think about God and and what they wore and what they ate, how they cleaned their houses. Uh, They had to, uh, in, in what they they, they could smell, and if they visited Jerusalem, and could smell the sacrifices going on. Everything about their lives revolved around God. But you see, when the temple's neglected, then that ceases to be true. And rather than their lives revolving around God, their lives would revolve around something else. Perhaps they begin to rely upon their own wisdom. As Eliashim did. We need a, an alliance with Tobiah. That's the wisdom of the world, not the wisdom of God. And there's a way that seems right to man, but it leads to death. It leads to destruction. And that's what was happening in the city and in the lives of these people because of their faulty uh, alliances, if you will. Theologian, New Testament scholar named D.A. Don Carson was commenting on this, this particular passage. And he began to think about it like this, and I was intrigued. He says, you know, oftentimes our, 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 our thoughts are misdirected. Rather than be about God, they're, 
even about other people. And he said, have you ever woken up in the middle of the night feeling really embarrassed or shamed because of something that you said to someone? Uh, maybe it was hurtful. Maybe it was stupid. Maybe it was, it was, you just wish you could take it back. And you just really feel embarrassed by that, even shamed by that. And you kind of wake up. Maybe not, maybe you don't wake up in the middle of the night, but maybe you think about it during the, the day. And he says, how many times though, Do you wake up in the middle of the night feeling embarrassed, feeling stupid, feeling shamed because of something you did against God? He says, generally, it's about what we've done towards others. And and that's important if you've done something embarrassing or stupid, especially stupid, or or hurtful towards someone. But, But do we really, is God the center of our lives? Do we really think, oh, what I've done is against God. You know, when David sinned, it took him a while. When he sinned with Bathsheba and, uh, and all of that situation, it took him a while to realize it. But he realizes that his, he realized his sin was just against them, but it was against God. That's what took him. And, and when their minds and their lives were taken, around the te- uh, taken off of the temple, they would, be, they would forget that God is to be the center of their lives. It's against him that they've sinned. It's against him that reconciliation and must, it's with him that reconciliation must happen. And when their minds are around the temple, they knew that all the time. And now all of that would fade away. And then beginning in verse 15 to verse 18, again, he finds that, 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 that now they've forgotten all their vows about the Sabbath And they're beginning again to buy and sell on the Sabbath, buy and sell their own wares and allow others into the city to to sell to them. And remember, this the Sabbath is not to be a sort of a legalistic thing or a burden to us. But when God gave the Sabbath day to the people of Israel, it was to be a sign. And it was to be a sign to them, yes, that God had created in six days and rested on the seventh, but it was also to be a sign that they belonged to him. And in that sense, they were a free people. Free meaning they were no longer enslaved to work. They could actually take a day off in seven, unlike slaves who had to work every single day. And so they were able to take this one day off in seven because they knew that God was their provider. And that's what really gave them rest. What gave them rest was to be able to say, I can not work today because I know that God is my provider, that it's not all about me. It doesn't all depend upon me, but rather upon him. And now I'm free. I'm not enslaved to work, but I'm free to rest. Because I know that God is my provider and my protector. I know that his name is upon me. You know, that great name of that benediction. His blessing upon us. May the Lord bless you, keep you. His face is shining upon you. He's gracious to you. His countenance upon you. So you can have peace. You can have rest. How can you have that? Only if you know you've been reconciled to God. Only if you know that he provides 
And so that was the importance of the Sabbath. And so when they began to break the Sabbath, what they would were, were saying is, God, you're really not our God. God, really, we don't belong to you. We, we can't really trust you to provide for us. We have to do it ourselves. So we're going to do it our way. And, and so therefore, again, they became enslaved rather than to be his free people to rest. They missed out on his rest. And so Nehemiah came in, and just as he had done before with Tobiah to get him out and then to cleanse it and to restore it, and just as he had done with the situation with the Levites and the priests not having all that was theirs, he appointed treasurers and and reestablished the the way that was to be done. And now then he comes to them and he warns them and he says, didn't you learn anything? Didn't you learn anything from all those who have gone before us? It was all those who have gone before us that did exactly what you're doing now, that they turned away from God and trusting him, and they had no rest, and they were ultimately exiled. Don't you remember that? Don't you get that? How do you, could you ever forget that? And then he went to those who were bringing wares into uh, Jerusalem, and he, he, he told them, stop doing that. And if you don't stop doing that, I'll lay hands on you. Not to pray. Right? I'll lay hands on you. I'll get my people... They'll come after me. We're, we're not just a religious organization, but we're a theocracy. And we, we, have, we have people and we'll come after you. And he shut the gates and he purified. The, the Levites purified themselves and kept the Sabbath day. And then he found again what, 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 he, what they had vowed not to do, beginning in verse 23. Uh, he found again that, that they were giving their sons and daughters to marry foreign women. And remember uh, the, the reason for that, and the reason for that now has borne fruit, and that is in just one generation, the children of these Israelite families speak a foreign language. Now you may think that's no big deal, but there's two things that make it a big deal. The one big deal is always the line in Israel was, if you hear someone speaking another language, it means the enemy has come. It means the enemy has invaded us. And so anytime you hear a foreign language in Israel in those days, it should make all kinds of bells and whistles go off and say, uh-oh, we're in trouble. But the second thing is that these kids would not know the language of worship. They would not know the language of the temple. They would not know the language of the oracles of God. They would not be able to hear and to really understand and participate in the songs and in the prayers of Israel. And so essentially what Nehemiah saw was, I told you this would happen. God told you this would happen. If you, if you marry outside the faith, if you will, what we see is that the faith is diminished and ultimately lost. And here we are just one generation after all of this was promised. And look, here it is. And so again, he confronts them a little violently. I have nothing particular to say about that. By the way, if you're expecting me to rationalize it in some way. Um, but, but there he is. And he again cleanses. And ultimately the final summary verse. Thus I cleanse from them everything foreign. And I established the duty of the priests and the Levites. Each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times. And for the first, first fruits. So. That's what Nehemiah found. That's what Nehemiah did. What do we gain 
from any of that. A few things in general, a couple of things specifically. In general, first this. We said this before, and what we learn here is that we really can't live on these mountaintop experiences. I mean, they had a great renewal and a great revival. Uh, the word of God was read and people were filled with joy. The word of God was read and they repented of their sins and, and, and redirected their lives, presumably. And, uh, and they even reorganized themselves in such a way that would, that would, uh, maintain the blessing. But, 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 but we see that they couldn't really live in that great revival period. We've seen that. See, in the history of the church, we had the great revival at Pentecost, if you will. But then as the church progresses onward, we find Paul having to write letters to churches because they've failed morally or because their theology has now become askewed, if not heretical. And, and, they, and, and the author of Hebrews has to write that whole sermon to the church to be able to say, you become apathetic to the things of God. You're neglecting the things of God. You're, you're sort of going through the motions. You're in the church, uh, uh, but, but you're not of it, if you will. It hasn't really penetrated your, your hearts and your lives. You just like being around all these wonderful people. And so you become apathetic and indifferent. Don't neglect this great salvation. And then finally we come to Jesus walking through the churches in the revelation of John. And there's seven churches and, and all but one or two have major issues and a few of them even in danger of how he puts it of, of your lampstands going out that is the light of the gospel of the Lord Jesus going out among you and, and so we see that that even in the midst of revival and then life of the church you have to be very cautious and very careful in all that takes all that takes place you remember that uh, Peter James and John Disciples of Jesus, some think his inner circle of disciples, uh, went up on this mountain with Jesus. We call it the Mount of Transfiguration. And you remember that, that they saw the glorified Christ um, working out the details of what was to come with Moses and Elijah. And, and there he, he was, and they saw it, and they wanted to stay there. It was a glorious moment in that mountaintop. But then they came down the mountain, and real life hit them, and they didn't know what to do. The real life that hit them that was that there was a, a young boy who was uh, in great difficulty, demons or whether it was, as some translations, but sort of epileptic kinds of difficulties and responses. And so here he was and, and, and his father had brought him to the other disciples and they didn't know what to do. They couldn't do anything. And they still needed to rely upon Jesus at that point in time to do something. They wanted to live there, but they really had to come down here and, and walk through the realities of life and realize their own inadequacies and their own weaknesses and still depend, if you will, upon Jesus. This life that we live is lived daily. I, I, I wish at times that I could hold to what I always call zap Christianity, that I could just get zapped, right? I could go to a meeting and go forward or whatever. I could be praying by myself. Just get this zap and boom, it's, it, I'm great from then on out. Temptation doesn't bother me. Um, no more real sin in my life. And I'm just sort of perfect. That'll happen uh, when Jesus, when I die, I suppose Jesus returns somewhere in the midst of all that, however that works out. But, 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 but it doesn't happen here. 
no matter what kind of great experiences we may have had, and some of us perhaps have had a very distinct and significant experiences with the Lord, but, but you know that still this Christian life is lived day by day. Francis Schaeffer, another philosopher, theologian, um, Christian, apologist, now passed, in a a book uh, called uh, True Spirituality, which I would recommend. I had to read it six or seven times over the period of 15 years to get it, but uh, which isn't to say it won't come to you the first time. Uh, Says more about me, but, but, but one of the statements that he makes is he says, before one is born, all that matters is that you're born, right? But after you're born, all that matters is that you grow. Same is true spiritually. You know, before you're born again and converted, but once you are, what matters is growing, And in the same way, for a human being to simply talk about the day of their physical birth would after a while get a little boring. And you'd have to say, well, what's happened since then? Anything? It's true for us as believers too. Some of us are stuck on that day in which we came to faith. Now, that's a good day. And if it was significant to you, for some it is, for some it isn't, in terms of some of us, Can't remember not believing in Jesus. Some of us sort of gradually kind of grew into us. And some of us, it was as dramatic as the Apostle Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. And that's all great. And never forget if that's a significant experience in your life, that moment of being born into the kingdom of God. But now what's happened since? We're to grow, as the Apostle Peter tells us, in the the grace and knowledge of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to be growing. And if we're not growing in the knowledge and grace of our Lord Jesus, then we're susceptible to declining and this declension that took place in the days of Nehemiah and we see even take place in the life of the church. So great experience is wonderful, can't live there. Why? We live in a daily existence, day by day, following after Jesus. The great experiences can inform that, but they don't automatically make that happen. There still is this walking and growing with the Lord. If you've been zapped, it'll wear off. Don't. Rely upon that. Rely upon the dailiness of faithfully walking with the Lord. And secondly, what we see here is that we're always in danger of the, the world creeping in. And, and by the world, I mean that which is, a, is contrary to the Lord. That, that is the way that seems right to a man, but leads to death. That which is against trusting in him. For them, it made a great deal of sense to make alliances with this Tobiah, who was powerful and influential politically and otherwise, no doubt, in that region. And they thought, if we can give him a place among us, then that'll ensure that life will go good for us. And, and, and Nehemiah, acting upon what was true, said, no, that isn't the case. You've got to get him out. 
And you've got to reestablish, put back in all that is right and all that is true of God. And then finally this, in general, that we're always in need of discipline. You wonder, who was there? There wasn't anybody there. Why did it take Nehemiah to come back and, and, and pull these folks back into doing that which is right and pleasing to the Lord? Why did it all fall apart when Nehemiah left? Who, what, who were the elders among them? Who were the wise men among them? Who were the, who were the spiritual ones among them? Why couldn't anybody see that this was taking place? Somewhere along the line, they needed what Nehemiah ultimately had to do was to bring this real discipline. And as we've said before, oftentimes when we think about discipline, we think of something negative. Nehemiah was on a negative path, let's face it. I mean, he was doing the negative stuff of casting out, if you will, but also the positive stuff of putting back in. He was saying, Tobiah goes, but all the tithes and offerings back. He was saying that we need to now reestablish payment for the priest. We need to do that. We haven't been. Forget that. And now get back to doing what we're supposed to be doing. We weren't observing the Sabbath, so stop that. But now do this. Uh, We were marrying the wrong people. Now do this. And so there was always a putting off and putting on, always casting out, but yet still putting in. And that's this sense of discipline. We, we talk about discipline. We, we say that's all that's necessary for being a disciple, being a follower of, being a learner of, and of this Jesus. Remember what Jesus put it. He said in Matthew chapter 10, he said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. He's basically calling them to be disciples, to learn of him. And he's saying, now I'm your teacher, and here's the yoke. Here's how we're tied together. I will teach you. That is, I will discipline you. I will be your discipler. And you can learn from me, and you can trust me, because I'm gentle. And I'm humble in heart. And if you come and learn from me, what you'll find is rest for your souls. How does that come? That comes from learning that Jesus is the Christ. That comes from learning that Jesus rules and reigns. That comes from learning that you belong to him. That comes from learning that he's forgiven your sins. That comes from learning that he has obeyed in every way and he gives his righteousness to you. And therefore, it's all done. And not only that, this righteousness that he gives to you, to, to you he works in you to enable you to follow after him. And he says, so trust me. This yoke is not enslavement in the way that the... A yoke of slavery is. This is a a yoke of discipling, a yoke of discipline, my discipline. Learn from me. You see, discipline in the biblical way is always educational and pastoral. Educational and there's stuff to learn. And so we're to train our hearts and we're to, we're to, we're, we're to, to renew our minds. And so there's something to learn from the word of God as the Holy Spirit brings to it to us, you see. But also it's pastoral. And we think of what's pastoral. We think of a pastoral scene. And what we think of as a pastoral scene is this, this great pasture land. And when you're looking at pasture land, especially in those days, what do you see? You see a shepherd and sheep. 
What do you see happening? You see discipling happening. You see disciplining happening. The shepherd who loves the sheep cares for them and nurtures them and provides for them and keeps them. That's this sense of it. And so it isn't to be necessarily this harsh thing, but this thing that's good for us and a blessing to us. And, and leads us. And so the shepherd has his rod and his staff. And with his rod, he beats off the enemies. And with his staff, he kind of pulls them back. And that's what happens when we're discipled, when we receive the discipline of the Lord. On the one hand, he's beating off our enemies. On the other hand, he's pulling us back. And that can hurt a bit. Especially if you like where you are at the moment. He pulls us back. And there was nobody there to do that. We need that in our lives. That's why, as we said last week, we need to be part of church where there are elders and, and, and those elders better be good. <laughs> those elders better be following after the Lord. And so watch your elders as they watch as well. And to be discipling, disciplining into all of this. Now, two things specifically. As I, as I hear this, one of, the, one of the things that comes to my mind, uh, perhaps it did uh, for you as well, when, but you think about Jesus when he, when he uh, uh, went into the temple on that day and he saw the temple being desecrated. And what did he do? Well, he cast everything out. He took all of the, 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 the ones who were selling and all of that and he pushed it out and to reestablish, at least at that point in time, and then ultimately to reestablish the temple as, as a house of prayer for all the nations, for all peoples. We know how that would work out. We know that he would be that very temple. We know that, that he would be the priest and the sacrifice and, and bring that all to fruition. But at that moment in time, I think about that as Nehemiah came in, he saw the temple really being desecrated by an Ammonite there and by the, the functions of the temple not happening. And so he pushed that all out and he brought back in that was to really be. And then I must admit, I, I think of this passage in Luke in chapter 11 and verse 24 it's, it's perhaps an obscure one in this context for you but I, I think of this Jesus speaking he says when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none it says I will return to my house from which I came and when it comes it finds the house swept and put in order then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself and they enter and dwell there And the last state of that person is worse than the first. And Jesus comments on this. He's in the the context of talking about evil and evil spirits even. Because he had just been accused of being from Satan himself. And what he's saying, I think, in part is this. Is that he comes to cast out. Not only cast out, but also reestablish within. Because he says, if you just cast out and leave it empty then it's empty and vulnerable. And I get the sense that Nehemiah knew this and said, I've got to put all of this out and then I have to reestablish. Because if I don't reestablish what is necessary to be there, this all will just come back and we have to reestablish it and secure it and establish it there. That's why I I read earlier uh, the passage from Colossians in chapter 3. It begins by this statement of truth. He said, this is what's really happened to you believers, that you've been raised with Christ. 
And, and now you're where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So, so set your minds there. That's this learning. Set your mind on the things that are above, that are things that are true from Christ, not on the things that are on earth. Because something has happened to you. Something really has happened to you. You've died and your life is hidden with Christ uh, in God. And so you can realize that when Christ, who's your life, appears, you'll also appear with him in glory. So that's established. So here's what you're to do. He says you're to put to death all of these sins. But not only that, you're to put on all of these graces and virtues. You aren't simply to concentrate your efforts on putting all this stuff off. But you must concentrate your efforts also, complementary to that, of putting all this stuff on. You not only put off sexual immorality, impurity, and passion, and evil desires, and covetousness, and anger, and wrath, and malice, and slander, and obscene talk, put off lying, It's all part of the old self. But notice this. You're to put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forbearance, forgiveness, love. For me, I see this great visual of all of that in Nehemiah's day. Put them out. Put it in. Put it out. Put it in. Don't just put it out, but put it in. And we must do that. That's why, too, this passage from Ephesians that we read responsibly, though for some reason it was truncated and we didn't get all, all the verses in. I don't know why. But um, uh, he says that we're to put off the old self, be renewed in the spirit of our minds, and thus we're to put away falsehood and speak the truth. It isn't just stop lying, it's speak the truth. Stop being a thief. But don't just stop being a thief. Work and give. See? Uh, We're to uh, let no corrupting talk come out of our mouths. So what's to come out of our mouths if it's not corrupting talk? Well, we're to speak that which is good for the building up that fits the occasion, that gives grace to those who hear. We're uh, not to uh, be... uh, Filled with bitterness or wrath or anger, slander, but we're to be tender-hearted, forgiving one another in God as God in Christ has forgiven us. So the visual is there, and we see it, and this is how we're to live. This is the dailiness of it. Every day putting off, putting on, putting off, putting on. Now you may have this question. Is that ever going to happen? Am I ever going to get really good at this? Is this ever going to really work? I've been at this a long time and still it's a difficult struggle various times for me. What gives me any hope at all that I can really do this? Well, two things. Well, one thing. I'll just do this. If we think back in Nehemiah's day, the people had returned, the temple had been rebuilt. The walls around the city were fixed. The city was secure. The city was repopulated. There were priests. There were Levites. They brought their tithes into the storehouse, all of that. But there was one thing missing. It's hinted all through, uh, well, it's hinted through various passages, especially as the people come together to worship and sing. They kept looking back to David. Still, there was no king. 
There was no king to rule them. There was no king to oversee them. There was no righteous and holy king. And, and now, though, the king has come. That's our hope. See, what was missing then, what would come, was this one. Perhaps the most striking and the most um, uh, remarkable uh, uh, words in all the Bible is Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Again, bells and whistles go off. Here he is, finally, the king has come. He's going to come and he's going to rule. And he really is going to clean all this out. And he really is going to fill it up with that which is true about God. And, and that's why we emphasize all the time uh, this, this work of, of Christ in what we call his passive obedience. It's not really passive in the sense that, it's, that he wasn't involved. It's passive in the sense that it happened to him. And that is he took the guilt of sinners upon himself and died for us and made propitiation, atonement, satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. But not only that, in his act of obedience, he obeyed perfectly. He was completely righteous. And that to please his father and that for us as well. And so we know that we're clothed with his righteousness, that everywhere we've sinned, he obeyed. Everywhere we're supposed to obey and didn't, he obeyed. And that's our hope, his righteousness clothing us and also at work by his spirit within us. And so now he rules and reigns over all things and he rules and reigns in us because we're in his kingdom and he is our king and that he is our He is our hope. But what does that mean? It means on a daily basis in our consciousness. We're to be as conscious of the rule of Jesus in our lives as they were to be conscious of the presence of God among them in the temple. Everything, as we know in the Old Testament, required the people of Israel to think about God all the time, as we've mentioned. What they wore, what they ate, how they planted, who they associated with, how they worshipped, everything was to, to, to cause them to think about God all the time. And we are to be the same. We must be the same. We must think about the fact that the King has come. Our Savior and our Lord. And we are forgiven and clothed with His righteousness. And by His Spirit, He works that in us. And we're to be conscious all the time of what we're to put off, cast out, and what we're to put on, fill up. That's the dailiness of it. And that's the confidence of it. Oh, we pray that God will bring great revival, renewal in the church, throughout the world. And perhaps he will. As he's done throughout history, we've seen it at various times in various places. Well, that'll be glorious if it comes in, joyous if it Still know that even in the midst of that, it's the dailiness, the consciousness, the renewing of the mind all the time with the great hope that the king has come. He sits on the throne and he rules and reigns. Now we know there's still tension. There's still the evil one. <laughs> 